So we're going to practice on Jude, and when you when we choose a biblical text to study, I, I typically rec- recommend this model: that you read it and reread it and reread it again. Um, that you pray for insight, you know, early and often. Um, I like to use a study Bible because the study Bibles I use have in, have interesting little commentaries at the bottom or little footnotes, and sometimes articles beside them. And then uh, over the last few years, I've switched. For the last year in particular. I've switched from relying more on commentaries to relying more on a Bible dictionary. I think every Bible text has really two audiences. It's the original writer to the people he thought would read it, and it's the Holy Spirit to everybody else, including us. And I think we can get that second message better if we can learn more about what the original author was saying to his original audience. So Jude wrote this thing as a letter, you know, who was he writing to? What, was, what problem was he dealing with? And then how can we compare that to the things, the issues we face today to understand what the Holy Spirit would have us learn from this? Um, and then sometimes I go to commentaries, sometimes not lately, but I usually go to one or two commentaries at the end. It used to be, like when, I read, when we did the book of Matthew here, I'd read like eight different commentaries on, on each passage that we'd study just to kind of get well-rounded and see what the experts said. Um, and now I use fewer commentaries, but um, um, rely more on a Bible dictionary to do more sort of, sort of my own exegesis, if you don't mind me throwing in a little the, uh, seminary class term. But uh, I usually do go to a couple just to see if, if my analysis is matching up with, uh, with guys who've been at it longer than me. Um, but I suggest reading the Bible three ways. Uh, historically, theologically, and relationally. And historically is just the first surface reading. What's it mean? You know, what's going on here? What's the, what's the writer trying to say? Theological, uh, the theological reading is, based on this text, what more do I know about God? What does this show me about God? And then the relational reading is, what about me? And that's what we all, we all want to get to. Um, it's a living word, uh, breathed by the Holy Spirit, valuable for correction and for training in righteousness. So how's this text, if I understand what this text is saying, how should I live my life? What should I believe? What should I do? What should I stop believing? You know, we live in a world where a lot of, it feels to me like our society just embraces a lot of lies. And how do we, how do we fight against that? Well, we renew our minds with the truth. And, and, and so when, when I find a Bible text where the underlying presuppositions of that text don't match up with the underlying presuppositions of our age, well, I need to change my thinking. And, and, and reading and understanding that can help me change my thinking. And if I change my thinking, then I can change my behavior. So let's start right in. Uh, Jude has 25 verses. I'd like to just read it straight through and, uh, and, and talk about what, it, well, with many interruptions, and talk about what, what, this, what this text means. It starts like a typical letter with the introduction. You know, you and I would write a letter like this, Dear Joe, and then we'd sign it, Yours Truly, with our name. Um, 2,000 years ago, they wrote letters the opposite way. They named the writer, and then they, they sometimes will address the audience, but not necessarily ever even name them. So here's the writer. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Uh, we've, read, we've done a few of Paul's letters here, and you can see the, the typical formula here. Jude's the writer. Who's he writing to? To those who have been called. And quite often there's this little uh, greeting. Uh, Paul usually said grace and peace. Here we get mercy, peace, and love from Jude. Jude 
is a name that occurs eight times in the uh, New Testament. It was a shortened form of the name Judas. And it's probably pretty easy to figure out why they started going with the nickname form. Uh, after Judas Iscariot, the name Judas just kind of fell out of fashion. I imagine in the 1930s in Italy, there were a bunch of kids named Benito. But I bet after the, after the war was over, they probably went by Ben or something else because that name's just not as fashionable as, as it used to be. Well, Judas Iscariot sort of ruined that name, so, so I, I think it's just likely that a lot of them are going to go by Jude. Um, what does he call himself? He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, which is kind of interesting because normally in, um, it, in this era, a guy would name his father not his brother. So why would he identify himself as brother of James? Well, that implies that the James he's the brother to is a pretty well-known James to his readers. And I can think of only one James that fits that bill, and that's the James who wrote the, gospel, or the letter of James, who was a leader in the early church, uh, the, the one at the Jerusalem Council that said it's okay for Paul to go preach to the Gentiles. And you, you may know this about him as well, the brother of Jesus. Now, how how curious and humble it would be that this guy, if, he's, if James is the brother of Jesus and he's the brother of James, then he's the brother of Jesus too, right? But he would name himself a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. His readers, I think, would have had no trouble figuring out who he was, but somewhat of a humble description, I would say. Of course, half-brother, right? Uh, uh, Joseph was their dad. Uh, Mary was the mother of all of them. What else do we know about Jude? If this is the Jude, there are a couple of theories, but this is the prevailing one, and it, makes, it holds a lot of water with me about who, which Jude this was. If, if he's the one who's the brother of James and Jesus, then he's the half-brother of Jesus. He's named in two lists, in Matthew and Mark. His brothers didn't believe. Uh, in John, when Jesus was, was with them, it's plain from the text that they, were not, they did not embrace his message. They thought, this guy's just our brother. Who, who does he think he is? And then, of course, after the resurrection, um, they're with the disciples, and they're making plans, and it's, it's obvious by implication that they became converts to Christianity after they saw the resurrected Jesus. And they're active in the book of Acts and active in the early church. And so um, the, seeing the resurrection firsthand, I think, would change a lot of unbelievers into believers. And so I think that's, that's probably his story. Let's read on. Verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. That changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. You know, we studied the book of Romans last year, and, we, and Paul went into that extensively in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And so we've, we've, we've covered that a good bit here. But again, I just want to remind you that this, uh, uh, like with any letter, we should read it at two levels. Jude had a message to his audience, uh, probably Jewish Christians. Because of the source material that Jude relies on, and we'll see that later, it's pretty plain that he would have expected his writers to be familiar with Jewish literature. And then the Holy Spirit is speaking to us all. What's the purpose of this letter? To, to urge you to contend for the faith. And what's that faith? That faith he describes as once and for all entrusted to the saints. I think there's a little message we can grab from that. We live in a society that loves the new and improved. 
We like the, you know, the next big thing. And yet the faith that we all embrace 2,000 years later is the one, the same one that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Now, now we've been to, I know you've been to the Christian bookstores, and I'm not, I'm not speaking against any of the, the new fads that you see, but every year it seems like there's a, a new hoopla over some new marketing idea. And, and I realize some of that's just ways to repackage and make the gospel more accessible. But the basic truth I want to, I, I, I want to drive home here is that the original gospel is, is the same one. It's the same one. Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, <laughs> my friend who made this pulpit uh, burnt this into the pulpit. Preach Christ and him crucified. And that's going to be the same, you know, when we celebrate our 6th anniversary, when we celebrate our 16th anniversary, we may find new ways of doing it and new places to do it, but it's, it's going to be about Jesus, and it's going to be about his resurrection and his atoning sacrifice. So who slipped in? Who's he writing against? Um, he calls them um, men whose condemnation was written about long ago, who secretly slipped in. The early church was quite concerned about false teachers, and you see Paul writing about them a few different ways. In Acts, he calls them savage wolves. In Galatians, he calls them false brothers who infiltrated our ranks to spy. And then in, in 2 Timothy, he calls them the kind who worm their ways into homes. Do we have those here? You look around. Who are the ones who have infiltrated us to spy or the ones that worm our ways into home? I don't want to. It sounds like they're a little paranoid, doesn't it? Uh, and yet this reminds me of the, the parable that Jesus taught. And we, we studied this last in the spring about the tares and the wheat. Uh, where it's a judgment that ultimately there will be a separation, and some of that separation is going to occur among people who have been going to church, who have been part of the at least the society of God's people, but evidently not part of the family of God. And that's kind of a scary message. Uh, and so in, in any institution, there are people who are part of it for whatever reason who aren't really committed to the principles and here the principle we've got to be committed to is Jesus and so it it seems to me like the message of the Bible is plain that in any church we've got to be careful about this that it could happen it could happen to us Uh, let's read on verse 5 though you already know all this I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day so he's telling some stories about separation. Uh, and you can read about these in Numbers 14. That was after the spies came and the people rebelled, and, and God said, you know, you guys are all going to die out here in the desert except for Caleb and Joshua. You're going to wander for 40 years because of your unbelief. You can read about them in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I'm going to read the passage to you in Hebrews 3. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And you've heard me say this before. I believe unbelief is the gateway sin, that, that if we truly believe, it will affect our lives, it will affect our actions. Um, if, and and any, any other sin we can, uh, uh, we can indulge in, we can sort of back up and say, if I really believed what the Bible says about me, if I really believe what the Bible says about eternity, that sin wouldn't be so tempting to me. So I think that's why I say unbelief is the gateway. 
So Jude gives us three examples of separation. There are the unbelievers in the wilderness who wandered and didn't see the promised land, demons and angels, and then next he's going to give us Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. So you can read about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. It's also a, a pretty uh, detailed description of them in 2 Peter chapter 2. But listen to what Jude says about the dreamers. They pull, just like the ones in Sodom and Gomorrah, he said these dreamers, the ones that pollute your church, are ones who pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and they slander celestial beings. Now let's read, is that a warning for us today? You know, I, I don't... I don't see a lot of people talking trash about the angels. So that third one, I, you know, I haven't noticed much. But those other two, those are pretty close to home, don't they? Polluting our bodies and, and rejecting authority. That seems like a pretty apt description of the world we live in. Verse 9. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct... Like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Hey, what's this story about? Uh, do, you, do you remember this Bible story? Don't, don't nod your heads or, or raise your hands for this yet. Uh, let me finish the thought. Do you remember the story about the archangel Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses? And the answer is no. We don't remember that story. It's not in the Bible. Um, I wasn't trying to shake you. I just <laughs> It's not there. And yet he's referring to this as if all of his readers know the story. So this takes us to the, the academic portion of today's message. If you'll indulge me in a little uh, um, teaching, I'm, I'm going to teach you three words that might be new to some of you. Um, uh, they were new to me a quite, short, quite a short time ago, and they're going to help us, I think, understand the book of Jude uh, a little bit better. The words are midrash, apocrypha, and pseudepigrapha. And although they seem like, whoa, what are these words from? Uh, they're, they're not that hard to understand. And sometimes you hear them used in other contexts, but uh, uh, they're, they're, they're pretty basic ideas. The Midrash, oh, and the reason, <clears throat> the reason I, I want to show you these words is that we'll see material like this as source material in Jude. He's going to quote other writings, and we're not going to find them in the New Testament or the Old Testament. We'll find them in these kind of writings. And let's talk about what they are. The Midrash, that's Jewish rabbinical writings, stuff that the rabbis wrote about their faith. And it's, you know, the Pharisee rabbis, they were big-time writers. They loved to describe how, how they ought to live their lives specifically in order to, to be obedient to God. And, and we do that today. Our bookstores are filled with Christian literature helping us to try to live our lives today. They don't, they don't reach the level of the canon. They're not biblical. They're not, I, I don't believe they're, I mean, I think the Holy Spirit guides those people, but I'm not, like, hanging on every word like I would on the scriptures, right? Uh, here's where you've seen these, the Midrash in the Bible. When Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, he used this phrase over and over again. He said, you have heard it said that something, but I tell you something else. So what, where had they heard it said? He was, he was referring to the Midrash there. You've heard it said that this is okay, but I'm going to tell you that this is what, I, what I'm calling you to now. So Jesus was kind of debating with the Midrash in the Sermon on the Mount. Apocrypha is probably the most common word here. It's, it's the part of the Bible that Catholics use and Protestants don't. 
you ever picked up a Catholic friend's Bible and you find, find books in the, between the Old Testament and New Testament that you're not used to? Like, what's this First and Second Maccabees and the Book of Judith and that kind of stuff? Well, there are books that were added to the canon later by Catholics and that Protestants believe just don't belong because they were added later. They were written, and it's not that they're necessarily like evil books or bad books, but for, uh, Protestants just don't believe they reach the level of divine inspiration of, of you know, we're going to, you know, we're willing to live and die with what's in these words. Um, th- there are lots of good writings, I think, by people who love God and, and were inspired by the Holy Spirit that aren't in the Bible. And, and so the Apocrypha could meet that category at sometimes. Um, uh, they're sometimes referred to as the deuterocanonical works, but those are kind of synonyms. And it's really just the Catholic part of the Bible that Protestants don't use. And this last word, pseudepigrapha, literally means falsely attributed writings. And so it can be used in adjective form, like, like all of Mark Twain's novels are pseudepigraphal because his real name was Samuel Clemens, right? Or there's a theory among some theologians, some Bible scholars, that Ephesians, the, the letter to the Ephesians is pseudepigraphal, that instead of Paul actually writing it, it was one of his later followers who wrote under the name of Paul so his letter would have more authority. I don't buy that theory. Um, I don't buy that theory because the plain language of the letter says it's from Paul. And so I'm going to, that, that one doesn't hold water to me. Just kind of illustrating a use of it. So what is this body of work that's com- commonly known as the pseudepigraphy? It, it, it includes a bunch of works that you may have never heard of before. Maybe you've heard of them. There's a book called Jubilees. There are two that are quoted here by, by Jude called The Assumption of Moses and Enoch. There's a first Enoch and a second Enoch. Um, and what makes them pseudepigraphal is that they were written around the time of Jesus, either a century before or a century or two after, and yet they purport to be writings of guys who lived and died much earlier. Um, the Assumption of Moses, and Moses lived around 1500 B.C., and this book that's written 1,500 years later called The Assumption of Moses purports to speak for him, but if it was written then, then it's really not his writing. It's part of the reason it's not in the, the, the Old Testament. And yet, Jude's going to quote these. And so that leads to, oh, and, and one thing that makes it even harder is, like, some of these books we don't even have. Uh, like First Enoch, you can find uh, significant fragments from that in, among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was at Qumran's of the Essenes read that book. The Assumption of Moses, there's no copy of that surviving, but a church father named Clement of Alexandria referred to it, and in writing his commentary on Jude, he said that that's what Jude was quoting from when he told this story about the archangel Michael and and uh, disputing with the devil. So maybe that's more academic than we need, but it, it actually presents a difficulty for people who hold a high view of the scriptures, like like I do and like I hope you do. And that here's the difficulty. If Jude belongs in the New Testament canon, and I believe it does because it's there, then shouldn't he have known that those other books didn't or flip it around? Since Jude belongs in the New Testament canon, don't those other books belong there too? Now, that's, that's the question, and my answer to both is no, I don't think so. That's just, this part's just my opinion, but Jude's goal was to communicate to his audience in a way they could understand using images and references they would understand. It's the same goal of any writer or speaker. Now, I realize I'm on shaky ground comparing myself to Jude, but you've seen me in a message here um, 
over and over again. Uh, I quote the Bible a lot. I, I, I think every preacher ought to quote the Bible a lot, ought, ought to read from the Bible. But don't I also quote you know, Christian sources that aren't in the Bible, C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and, and, and guys like that over and over again? In fact, I go well off the scriptures and Christian writers. I've quoted the John Belushi character in Animal House and, and, and Derek Zoolander to, to help communicate a message to, to the congregation in terms that are easy to understand and that we can connect with. Is that okay to do? Is it okay for Jude? Is it okay for me? I'll give you a good example about when Paul did it. What did Paul, when Paul went to Mars Hill to communicate to the Stoics and Epicureans and the unbelieving philosophers there in Athens, he quoted them a poem and he said, this, what's true in this poem applies to my God. He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Have you heard that before? Paul said that at Athens to the people he was speaking to. Paul was quoting, not from the Old Testament, um, Paul was quoting a Greek poet, and that poem was an ode to the, to the Greek god Zeus. Um, now, I, my point is that, of that is that Paul took what they knew and connected it to what they didn't know. And I think that's what Jude's doing here. He's taking some literature he knows they know and helping to connect it to a truth that he wants them to know. Okay, maybe I beat that to death, but uh, we're, we're quoting, uh, Jude's going to be quoting some sources that we're not familiar with, and, and that was the biggest question I had as I studied this book. Why does he do that? Okay, so back to the body of Moses. Who wins this fight? The Archangel uh, Michael, or does the devil get the body of Moses? And I think I, think I can answer that from Scripture. Take a look at Matthew 17. Uh, you've heard this story before, uh, the first three verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So I guess uh, Michael, the archangel Michael won that dispute over the body of Moses because he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Elijah. Okay, back to Jude, verse 11. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Any of you read about Cain or Balaam or Korah this week? Good, good for you. I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, what's, what, uh, what studying Jude would drive us into. Obviously, we don't want to be like them. We don't want to be like Cain, we don't want to be like Balaam, we don't want to be like Korah. Cain's probably the most familiar of all these guys. You know, he, he's the one who killed his brother, uh, we can read about him in Genesis 4. He's an example of works without faith. Because Cain made a good sacrifice, didn't he? Yet God knew his heart. And God knows our heart. And it's not about our performance, it's about our belief. Now, our belief gives rise to performance, no doubt. But if the Bible makes it plain a few different ways that it's possible to perform thinking that that's going to earn us God's favor and God sees the heart. Balaam... To me, is one of the most comically absurd stories in all the Bible. Um, the, this is a man who has a debate with his donkey and loses the argument. Uh, he, he, his donkey turns around and, has, and they start having this conversation. And, and instead of like, you know, your donkey, why are you talking to me? He, he kind of has an argument with him. And the donkey kind of puts him in his place and, and wins the argument. It's a very funny story, at least that part of it. The rest of it's not so funny. Um, 
And there's a very serious message here, and several New Testament writers commented on the story of Balaam as a guy who earned for himself eternal destruction because, because he wanted money more than he wanted to follow God. And the text from Numbers doesn't make that abundantly clear, but the New Testament writers who write about Balaam make it clear. I've done messages here on Balaam and on Korah, so, uh, so the veterans in the congregation, might have, this might be familiar to you. But uh, Balaam is a guy who, who used religion for profit, and clearly the Lord's not going to be for that. And then Korah, that was the Old Testament reading uh, that we started with this morning. Thank you, Ron. Um, Korah uh, is an example of rebellion against authority. And you can read about all the, about that in Numbers chapter 16. Here's my commentary on Korah. It looked to me like he tried to start the first congregational church and instead got to see the world's first earthquake, um, and it swallowed him up. And so we didn't read the whole story. We read sort of the setting the stage. But the next day, um, Moses says, all you guys go stand over there, and I'm going to stand over here, and then... <laughs> it's, it's bad news for Korah and his friends. Jude 12. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit or uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackness has been reserved forever. Jude, quite poetic with the metaphors to describe the false teachers here. He called them blemishes, shepherds, clouds, trees, waves, and stars. This guy could turn a phrase and, and come up with a word picture. That waves one got me because, you know, since we live in kind of a close-to-the-beach community, we tend to think of waves as our friends around here. But uh, he's actually using a reference that Isaiah used back in Isaiah 57. Isaiah said, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. So what he's saying is these false teachers just dig up the dirty stuff. They stir up trouble. Back to Jude, verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. All right, notice this is in quotation marks. This is a quote from from the book of Enoch, First uh, Enoch, uh, chapter one, verse nine. It's broken up into chapter and verse, like uh, like Bible readings. And again, you can find this among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we're not that familiar with First Enoch around here. I've never read it, um, but here's a quote from it. And just the one thing I notice is he uses this word ungodly four times in the same verse. He, uh, um, he he's he's hammering home a point. Back to Jude, verse 16. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So the Bible ought to teach us what to do. It ought to teach us what not to do, right? Here's a list of don'ts from verse 16. False teachers grumble. They find fault. They follow their own evil desires. They boast and they flatter. So if I find myself doing that, clearly the Bible's instructing me to turn away. Verse 17, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Again, that's a quote, and yet it's not a direct quote from any other New Testament writing. And he's clearly quoting the apostles, the, the people who saw the resurrected Christ. So probably he's quoting another source that would have been familiar to his readers that's lost to us. Uh, it's very, very similar to other New Testament warnings from other apostles. Uh, in fact, I've given you a list here. The New Testament reading that Janie read us is uh, 1 Timothy 4, 
1 through 8. And then Paul has several others that are very similar to this warning, and, and Peter has one too. All right, we're going to finish with the application, and it's embedded in the letter. Verse 19, these are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So here's the application. You and God, according to Jude, should, this is, this is how you should approach your relationship with God. You should build yourselves up, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love, and wait for eternity. Let's not forget that this is not all there is. Um, that, that will help us to endure. We don't have to wait till we die to get the blessings of heaven. But whatever we enjoy today is just a, a shadow of what we're going to get to enjoy then. And then there's the downside, the don'ts. Verse 22, be merciful. I'm sorry, not the don'ts. That was our relationship with God. This is going to be our relationship to each other. Verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. That last part's kind of weird. What's that about? What are we going to do? Be merciful to doubters. And, and what he's saying is we've got these false teachers. When, when you're... When you're when you're being careful to, to avoid their teaching, don't, don't trample the ones who have been deceived by them. Uh, be merciful to them. Rescue others from the fire. I always, when I see that, I, I just get kind of a picture of recovery ministry, of you know, people who are, um, or another uh, Wednesday night we heard this when we discussed it, um, Roy, your nursing home ministry could be very much described as, as snatching people from the fire. I mean, they're, some of those folks are, are, are the closest people we'll meet. Um, and, uh, and, and your ministry there is, could be seen as that. Show mercy. But this last part is be careful. Uh, Paul had a warning in Corinthians. When you're reaching out to people who are struggling with sin, uh, you know, the, the devil wants to entrap you with that sin too. So let's not be reckless or careless about our own ability to resist temptation when we're trying to reach out to our weaker brother. I think that's the message that Jude's giving us. Now, the last two verses end totally different from other letters. Whenever Paul wrote a letter, he usually finished with a say hi to this guy, say hi to that guy, see if you can get these two ladies to quit fighting, uh, my brother sends you greeting, that kind of stuff. But, but Jude ends with what I would call a doxology, very much like the song we sang for the offering. Verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore, amen. So as he closes the letter, Jude tells us four things about God. He shows us his glory, his majesty, his power, and his authority. And as we go back into worship, I'd encourage you to meditate on these things, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the power of God, and the authority of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this message from your word. I thank you for uh, uh, this letter, this you know, easy overlooked letter. And Lord, I thank you for the, uh, uh, the clear truths uh, that are embedded here. Lord, I ask that you would help us to read this not just as a an interesting history of the early church, but as a, uh, as a instruction for our lives. Lord, we don't want to be like the false teachers, and Lord, we don't want to, to, to fall prey to their teachings. But Lord, we want to be the people who, who celebrate your glory. Please show us how to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.